This is an ABC podcast. War and conflict are tearing countries apart all over the world and they're leaving people in desperate situations. How is it possible for them to hang on to hope? A panel of writers ponder this question on This Big Ideas. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay. Some form of hope is needed to work through a traumatising past or to keep going against the odds. But maybe hope is not enough. People in desperate circumstances, it is what can we do practically? Anyone that's been involved with people that are in desperate circumstances, there comes a point you can't say to them, oh, my prayers are with you and my hope's with you. I mean, they just want to know how to get out of the place. Hope, in a sense, is just we've got to accept our situation. For us to survive, we can't hope anymore. So there comes a point that you've got to get beyond hope and you've got to get to a point of acceptance and then, okay, where do I go from here and how do I move on? Arnold Zabel, together with Bronwyn Bertzel and Louisa Lim, explore how people cope with living in war-affected places and in communities in turmoil or under suppression. The moderator is RN's Anthony Fennell. Arnold Zabel, I'll start with you, and could you help us by giving us a definition of what we mean by this idea of nostalgia? Because it's, it's much more than just a longing for the past, isn't it? Look, I think nostalgia is a very misunderstood concept. I actually prefer the Greek, nostalgia. And nostos means the return, and algia means pain. And analgesic is a painkiller. So it it actually means the pain of longing for the return. And in certain circumstances, it's, it's a physical ache, especially for those who can't go back. There's a character in one of my novels, See a Many Returns, who is in Melbourne in the 1920s and he's longing to go back to Ithaca and a child dies. He has a child in in Melbourne and uh, the child dies and his wife says, we'll never go back because we have to tend his grave. So there was no way back. And so there's a desperation there. It's almost a physical ache. And, And perhaps the most dramatic example of the depth of the physicality of that that pain of longing for the return is the soldier fighting in foreign battlefields, especially if you're on the losing side. So often they talk about this longing and it can be uh, almost a disease, an illness. But it's not necessarily a passive thing, isn't it? it? It doesn't mean you've given up necessarily. Oh, no. Look, you go back to the Odyssey and you have uh, Odysseus spending 10 years making his lonely way back home with a few companions on the way that he, he meets but, uh, and monsters that he fights. But it's the archetypal journey driven by nostalgia. Uh, he has to get back to Ithaca. That's, that's the archetype. Now, you, you're a human rights advocate as well as an author, and you've recently spent time in Europe with people displaced by the conflict in Ukraine. What did nostalgia look like in that context when you were talking to these people? Oh, look, the thing that stood out more than anything else was that the conflict has intensified a love of homeland. I mean, Ukrainians uh, feel more strongly Ukrainian than ever. So when I was meeting Ukrainian refugees in, in Poland, in Krakow, Uh, and 95% of them are women and children, women and their babies, their longing to return is is just more intense than ever because the love of their homeland has increased. And uh, there was one woman in particular uh, who had uh, lived in Australia for 15 years and was about to return to Australia when the war broke out. She got a husband uh, in Australia. She got to the point where... Uh, when she finally decided she'd go and take her mother, whom she didn't want to abandon, uh, back to Australia, she sent me a text saying, yes, I got the ticket, but uh, I feel so sad, I'm going to nowhere. Mm. So she left Australia feeling very much a part of this, but it ended up becoming um, far more attached to that village 
that she'd spent time in, um, in uh, and grown up in, in Ukraine. Bronwyn Birdsell, your novel is based in Sarajevo and it's set two decades after the famous siege of that city during the Balkans Wars. Uh, people might forget this, but the siege of Sarajevo was the longest in modern history, wasn't it? The scars healed, as you describe, you know, a place of, of much laughter, but you, you also describe that the laughter could be deceptive. Mm. Why? Oh, that's such a good question. I think uh, a visitor to Sarajevo might be quite charmed by the fact that everywhere you go, people are incredibly welcoming. They're incredibly uh, keen to welcome you into their home. They're incredibly uh, keen to cook for you, to, to tell you what they love about their city. They love their city so passionately. And yet, sometimes in the, the humour, there's many, many layers. And the darkness of the humour, like in Australia, we joke about a lot. We kind of consider ourselves... I think people that make, make jokes about things, but there the humour goes so dark and so deep and you realise that you're laughing along with something perhaps, um, perhaps that has really deep truths in it, deep pain. It's a picture postcard place too, isn't it? I mean, it, looks, mm. it looked beautiful before it was besieged. <laughs> it looks beautiful today. So uh, there's a kind of veneer, isn't there, of normality that's over the top of it. I mean, you, I know you've written that you described talking to people, engaging with the people, watching the people, almost as being part of a, what you called a slow-motion car crash. Mm. Yeah. I think I put that, that line into a character's mouth, but I suppose it comes from me. Um, there's a strange sense there of when I lived there, which was from 2007 to 2011, there was a sense of perhaps hope. I, I mean, that's the word that is the word of the festival. But yet we, it moved from this sense of transition, like a transition time into a permanent state of stasis. And every year that I go back or every time that I go back, you see that this beautiful, warm, welcoming city is actually really um, suffering under the corruption and the um, political stasis that has now become the norm rather than the transition state. The overall population of the country is three million people. Like most places and like most people, I guess, there's, a, there's an incredibly rich and very strong sense of identity, and yet lots of people want to leave. Explain that to us. How do they reconcile that, that love of country and the strong desire to just get out of it? I mean, it's, it's a kind of tragic situation, really, because, as, as you said, people have, a, people have fought for the city, right? It's not a neutral position, how they feel about their city, and yet the opportunities are dwindling. And I think the, the last statistic I read is that every year the number of people goes up that are leaving. And in the first half of 2021, around 80,000 people left the country. And when you think of, I mean, sorry, like a population of 3 million, if 80,000 people are leaving, it's a generation practically going. And in my experience as an English teacher, part of what you're doing in a strange way is also preparing people to leave because with young people, you're um, engaging them in scholarships and, and trying to give them opportunities, always with the hope they come back. But it's a fraught um, job to have in some ways. Louisa Lynn, that's also the situation with Hong Kong, isn't it? A, a love of the city, a, a strong sense of identity. Some of it is a, is newly discovered or recent sense of what it means to be a Hong Konger. But again, this mass exodus just of people wanting not to be there. That's right. I mean, in Hong Kong, since uh, 2020, June, um, that's when the government imposed this very, very draconian national security legislation on Hong Kong that has really transformed uh, life in Hong Kong. It's removed a lot of freedoms that did exist and has changed the curriculum in schools. So all teaching is really with a national security focus, even if it's chemistry or maths or geography. And people don't want that for their children in particular, because one sort of very central plank of Hong Kong identity is this respect for core values, which are sort of Western democratic liberal core values. You know, it's a place where Two million people out of a population of seven million went out to protest uh, in 2019 against this extradition legislation that they thought would change the way of life. People, you know, are really voting with their feet when they see that they're no longer allowed to express themselves. The newspapers they love have been shut down. They're no longer allowed to uh, have protests or even, you know, 
speak openly about these things. And so, uh, like in, as Bronwyn was just saying, you know, the, the levels of people leaving, I think it was uh, 90,000 people in the first three months of the year. And as they leave, that sense of identity is building. Um, there was this really uh, moving speech that I heard during a protest, which was given by an activist who went into exile. And he said, being a Hong Konger is an identity that ex exists nowhere but in our minds. And I just thought that was such a powerful idea that, you know, you can be a Hong Konger outside Hong Kong. I've given speeches, actually, I gave a speech in Sydney where someone came up to me and said, I'm so grateful that I heard you speak. I'm a Hong Konger, but I've never been to Hong Kong. And I just thought that was such a powerful idea. Am I right in saying that it's almost like a, a, a double trauma in a way, that not only is your homeland, your place of identity, is that being questioned and disappearing, but you're being forced to watch it if you're a person in Hong Kong. You're being forced to watch it in real time. That's right. It's incredibly traumatic to watch a place being transformed before your eyes and there's nothing that you can do about it. And so what we see in Hong Kong, which is quite extraordinary, is a nostalgia for the present because things are changing so fast. People want to hold on to every second. So, you know, you get artists whose, whose work is literally walking the streets with cameras and walking the really ordinary routes, you know, going to the tea shop to buy a cup of tea. Uh, you know, Hong Kong milk tea, which is really strong and sugary. But, you know, who knows if that shop will be there the next day because there's been a whole campaign against business owners that supported the extradition movement. And, you know, the sites of Hong Kong are changing. You know, these, like the jumbo restaurant that uh, was towed away and sank. Mysteriously sunk. Mysteriously sunk. Conveniently, this, some might, might suggest. Yeah. This enormous floating restaurant, which was kind of a weird, tacky pleasure palace, but the backdrop of so many films. Everybody who went to Hong Kong visited it from the Queen downwards. And, you know, when it sank, everybody saw that as such a metaphor that the Hong Kong that we know, you know, and it might be this sort of oversized, hugely ambitious, tacky, gaudy. incredibly gaudy, but that's great money making venture. You know, it's sunk. So the present is disappearing at a rapid rate of knots, but the history is also disappearing, isn't it? Because the Communist Party of China being the Communist Party of China, they're busy rewriting the history of Hong Kong completely. That's right, and that's why it's so alarming that it's, you know, both past, present and future that are all disappearing at the same time. And one really kind of clear example of that was when the Apple Daily newspaper, which was a, the most popular newspaper in Hong Kong, a pro-democracy newspaper, it was shut down. Its assets were frozen. Seven of the top journalists are in jail awaiting trial on national security charges. But the day they shut it down, the entire archives of the newspaper, 23 years of reporting, disappeared from the internet. And that was a move that the newspaper itself took because they knew that people would be incriminated, other journalists by the reporting, the, you know, the opinion and editorial comment writers were being put in prison. The risk was too high. So not only is the past disappearing, but Hong Kongers are disappearing it themselves and they have no choice in order to protect themselves. Silence and disappearance is really the only way if you're staying in Hong Kong. And I think that's just something that's incredibly hard to watch. Arnold, the disappearance of one's history is something that you write about. It's there in a lot of the tales in The Windmill and other books that you've written uh, in places like Cambodia, also in China back in the, the late 1980s. What does it mean to those people to try to hold on to hope, to try to hold on to a sense of what their place of belonging was while they're watching it disappear out of the books? There are so many different responses. There's no simple answer to that question. In my own family, my parents were lucky to get out of Poland, their beloved Poland, their beloved Bialystok. They were lucky to get out because the rest of the family was murdered, the family that they left behind. And it's interesting, their attitude to Bialystok, I, I grew up with it. I, I used to hear in, in Melbourne, in the house that I grew up in, a little single-fronted terrace in Carlton, 
I would hear it late at night, like from the kitchen. I was in the bedroom, the kitchen was the distant place, right? And you'd hear their old world friends sitting around drinking uh, cups of tea and the occasional vodka, and they'd be saying, Bielsk, Bransk, Bielostok, Grudek, Orly, right? These were the villages and the towns in the borderlands of Poland and Russia that they'd left behind. But at the same time, it had become a place when I eventually went there, on the, on the way to the airport, uh, I dropped in, my father and mother were still alive, and my father said, why are you going back? For me, it's one big graveyard. So it depends what you've left behind. So similarly, when you're talking about Cambodia and China and all the other places where people are afflicted by war, by trauma of one kind or another, it becomes very conflicted what you think about your country. Cambodia, what I discovered there is, OK, we're looking at another genocide. But, and this could apply to Hong Kong too. What was very interesting about the Cambodian genocide was that it was an auto-genocide. They turned on each other. And so this is another layer of complexity about how you feel about your homeland. And because you may be living side by side by, with someone that betrayed you. So things get coloured by uh, the events of history. And similarly in China, that are exploring the watermill, I'd lived there for a year in 84, 85. Similarly, they were looking back on the Cultural Revolution as a time when all hell had broken loose. So, yeah, I think a lot of things play into this. Now, interestingly, in your book, there's a section where you're talking about two characters, man and wife. They survived the Holocaust. They're both very strong characters. Straight after the war, they adopt the same approach to getting over the trauma and dealing with their memories and dealing with their sense of identity. But pretty quickly then they diverge and one of them embraces the past almost as a defence and the other pushes it away. Could I get you to, to explain why that happened? What were they both hoping for with that? Well, this is a story called The Republic of the Stateless and the key characters are Sonia Lizarong, who became my son's surrogate grandmother, beautiful, modest woman, and her first husband, Sammy Feder. And after the war, whilst they were in Bergen-Belsen, in a displaced persons camp, they set up an extraordinary theatre called the Cassette Theatre, the Concentration Camp Theatre. And this theatre uh, was a theatre of the impossible. And within months after coming out of that horror, they actually performed their first cabaret in a tent, a field tent, that normally accommodates 1,000, but 3,000 people crammed in, and they uh, had a mirror... Sorry, just again, reminding that we're, they're living in a former concentration camp. That's right. Yeah, I mean, so even that must have been traumatic in a oh, way. Oh, extraordinary. You know, they, just, just out there was where it happened, and, and there was a riot outside because some people couldn't get in because what they were doing was reflecting the reality back at the audience. It was an act of catharsis. They did not compromise. They told the story of what had happened to them, reenacted it. However, as, as the years went by, Sonia wanted to move beyond the past. And if you want to summarise very quickly what it was with her, when I got to know her, when, when, when people got to this subject of the past, she would kind of close her eyes and rub her knuckles over her eyes as if that was it, and then she'd open them. She wanted to be in the glorious present. That's what she wanted. And she worked very hard to get there. But Sammy, he lived the rest of his life, and I think it's one of the reasons they separated, obsessed with that period of what he called frontline art, or the art of the closed fist. And he lived out his life in Israel where he wrote memoir after memoir after memoir, crisscrossing the same territory. So was it a form of vengeance in a way for him? Was, he, was it his way of, uh, of not feeling powerless? It wasn't vengeance in his case. What it was, was that he, he felt we resisted, we stood up, we did something amazing. But at a certain point, all those actors and theatre workers that were part of the theatre they wanted to move on and make new lives. They wanted to have families. They wanted to get beyond it. But in his case, he felt very strongly that the world's got to know. For him, it was, I have to bear witness. And Bronwyn Birdsall, as a foreigner in Sarajevo, you found that people, after a very short period of time, were very eager to share the details about tragedy from the, the siege and, and, and from the war. 
What was your assessment of what they were after in sharing, sharing those details, even if you weren't specifically asking for them? I had no war fascination or very little war fascination when I arrived. I was 24 when I came to Sarajevo and I came there by accident. I, I visited some friends and then I got offered a job teaching English and I didn't think about it as a city, like, is this a city I'm going to live in? It was just the city I was in and I was on an adventure and slowly the city crept up on me and I think perhaps with that kind of attitude, I wasn't going looking for stories then people wanted to tell me their stories. And then once I worked as an English teacher, I worked a lot one-on-one -on -one with people, um, especially with adults. And even though I would try to keep the topics to what was in the, the book, generally people wanted to tell me their story. In that moment, I think this feeling of openness, people feel that in you, and then, then the stories come. So, yeah, I heard a lot. Louisa, you were... In Hong Kong, you were a China correspondent for a long time. You moved to Melbourne. You're at a university in Melbourne. You join with others to start detailing stories and uh, what it, the sense of identity, what it means for people in Hong Kong to have a sense of identity. Then that suddenly stops. Just tell us about that. Why did it stop? And what was the pressure that you and others felt in that group? Well, I was a member of a group of PhD students who are studying Hong Kong identity as, as the subject of our research, but we were all Hong Kongers as well. And then after the protests happened, we were very immersed in what that was doing to identity. But then actually it was, we were on a Zoom call reading an academic paper about Hong Kong identity when the national security legislation was announced. And I just remember that moment so, uh, it was such a huge moment because we all knew that this was the moment that everything would change forever for all of us. And, you know, after that call, we stopped talking. Uh, you know, several of my group had to suspend their PhDs for a few months because how can you study something that is being stamped out? And you know, it was really hard to do any, any academic study of identity when Hong Kong identity is, was being targeted in this way. And, you know, now it's even harder. Uh, it's just ex extraordinarily difficult. You go to academic conferences on Hong Kong identity and, you, you know, you're looking down the list to see who else is there, to see whether it's safe to say the things that you believe in. Safe for the people in Hong Kong, not, not you yourself, say, as a Hong Konger outside of Hong Kong. Safe for anybody. The national security legislation is extraterritorial in nature. So anyone can be targeted no matter where you are in the world. If you say something which is seen as subversive or seditious, um, you could be targeted no matter where you are. So uh, the study of Hong Kong is just incredibly difficult and really quite fraught at the moment. Since that time, we have started meeting again, but just the tenor of our interactions is so fraught. We go to film festivals, we go and see movies about Hong Kong together, and then we come out and we drink together and we talk about the actual physical pain that we feel in watching them, where we feel it on our bodies, because it's just such an, a physical act of trauma to watch these films. And these are films about Hong Kong that cannot be shown in Hong Kong. Sometimes there's a very famous one called Revolution of Our Times where the filmmaker himself has never seen his film shown on a big screen because he still lives in Hong Kong. All the faces of all the people in it have had to be blacked out or they're wearing masks because it's so dangerous for them. Um, there was another film at the Melbourne Film Festival called Blue Island where they had an actual icon in the uh, credits with bars on it to show how many of the crew were now behind bars. Uh, it was just astonishing that this has happened so quickly to a city that was so international, it was so modern, it was part of the fabric of our world, and yet people are being put in prison. Well, the, the quick nature yeah. of that change, I was going to ask you, was that, was that a, a very traumatic thing for people? Because in one sense, the threat from the Communist Party, the threat against Hong Kong, had existed for decades in plain sight. You know, it, it was part of international politics. It, it was just there. We saw the protests building and building, and then, as you say, suddenly overnight, 
it seemed like it was just all over. The suddenness of that, how was that for people? Did that demoralise them? I mean, it was just incredibly shocking. So, you know, let's not forget that when Hong Kong returned to Chinese rule in 1997, Beijing itself had signed international agreements saying it pledged to leave Hong Kong's way of life unchanged for 50 years. So there was always this buffer till 2047 where things were not supposed to change. And, you know, Hong Kongers, maybe it's political naivety, but there was the hope that international actors would respect the agreements they themselves had made. And, you know, maybe in the first few years, there was anxiety that things might change. But in fact, after 97, things stayed relatively the same. But the encroachments began, and they were small to begin with, and then they got larger and larger. And the protest movement also grew as people developed their distinct sense of identity. I think... 2047 was always the moment that people thought that a crackdown or something would happen. And the fact that it happened 25 years before and just so, so quickly, that, that was incredibly shocking. I do want to move on and, and to our other guests again, but I have to ask you at this point, you write explicitly in Indelible City about the brutal way that Hong Kong is being transformed. Now, prior to that, you also documented the brutality of Tiananmen Square, which is for a lot of Chinese, I have no idea it ever existed. It's just been written out of history. How conscious were you, and, and again, in terms of your identity, your relationship to both Hong Kong and China, how conscious were you that in writing about those topics, you were never going back? It was a decision that I made. I felt that in order to be able to express myself as freely as I wanted to, I needed to have no constraints on me. And I also felt that I was in a position to do that. I don't have family in China who could be used against me. And I also felt that, in a way, I had a responsibility to my sources, to the people that I'd interviewed, to tell their stories as fully and freely as I could. And the only way that I could do that would be without thinking about, oh, can I go back? Can I say this or not? Is this or that going to stop me from going back? I didn't want to have those constraints. So I knew right from the start with the China book, with the Hong Kong book, uh, it was pretty clear to me once the national security legislation passed that day that that would be the, the end of my, my time in Hong Kong. Arnold Zabel, you use a term called Luftmensch. Could I get you to explain to us what that term means and why it's relevant to this, this broader discussion that we're having? Well, Luftmensch uh, means literally man of air. And originally it features in the novels of Sholem Aleichem, the, the great Yiddish writer, and he had characters living at the turn of the 19th, 20th century in the towns and the shtetlach and the villages of Eastern Europe. They had so many restrictions on their lives, they had to use their wits. They had to make a living out of the air. But I, I adapted that term to mean the, the person that who has been running from one place to the next for so long, they no longer feel the ground beneath their feet. They're uprooted. Uh, I explore this in, in a number of my works. And I've seen this also with uh, asylum seekers and refugees that I've worked with over the years. It's interesting. So many have left for the same reasons you left. No one willingly leaves their homeland. But they left and then for a, a long period of their life, they're going from one place to the next, sometimes being detained for years on end in a particular place. And bit by bit, they're starting to feel rootless, like, and, and they become Luftmenschen and, and people of air. I think the best way to summarise it, and I think the best way to do justice to these stories when you're writing these stories, is to look at it as often people's lives are kind of three-act drama. Act one is the time before. Once I had a village, once I had a time, once I had Bialystok, once I had Ithaca, once I had Kurdistan or whatever, and I loved it. It was my childhood. It was my young adulthood. It was the place where I grew up. Then something happens. Act two is that severance. And that act two can go on for years. There are people living generationally in certain refugee camps, right? And, and then there is the time after, the rest of your life. 
And the rest of your life I've seen often is a roller coaster between nostalgia and intense longing for the place you left behind and then moments when you begin to feel grounded again in the new place. And so this drama is being reenacted again and again. I like bearing this in mind because it means when you engage with people, you engage with the fullness of their life. Very often we get stuck in the victimhood stage or the stage when the trauma occurred, when it's a far bigger picture you should be looking at. You were nodding during that. Does this idea of Luftmensch, does that, does that speak to you in the experiences that you've had? I was very moved by that in your book, Arnold, and it actually just reminded me of something I've read, if you don't mind me sharing. It was, it was the anniversary of um, Vietnitsa being destroyed. Vietnitsa is Sarajevo City Hall, but it also, uh, in 1992, was its library and its city archives. And on the night of the 25th of August, 1992, it was destroyed by bombardment. And there were these um, incredible librarians, which at this festival I'm sure people would understand the love of books, that went in risking their lives to save what they could. I think one and a half million artifacts, pieces of artifacts were destroyed. And the other night I happened to read an interview uh, in Bosnian, and my Bosnian is a bit rusty, so I hope I get the translation right, of the sister of a librarian who was killed on this terrible night. And she said, I live my life now in two timelines, one in chronological time and one in emotional time. And the emotional time ended on the 25th of August, 1992, even if the chronological time has gone on. And I hope I've done justice to that beautiful um, sentiment that she shared in the loss of her sister and in the loss of this incredible institution. I want to move on to what we mean, I guess, by this idea of hope. You know, this festival is, the tagline is radical hope. This session is hope in a conflicted world. Mm -hmm. When you're talking to people, or when you're dealing with people who, who feel that they no longer belong, who feel that they have to go abroad, who, who still feel this pain of the past, how do you appear hopeful to them? How do you speak to them about the notion of hope? I struggled with the word hope for a very long time. Um, my worldview was really shattered by my, my years in Bosnia, as amazing as this country is and as generous as people were to me, of course. The stories that I was surrounded by in every day really shattered my, um, my sense of hope, it's the best way to put it. And I was in, in Sarajevo in 2017 and I was telling an old student of mine that I was writing this novel and she said I had a duty to have a sense of hope in the novel. And I found this frightful because at that point my, my novel was quite bleak and I, I wondered about this for a long time and I stumbled across a quote which at the time I thought was by um, the poet Seamus Haney and he said, it turns out he was paraphrasing Vaclav Havel and he says, hope is an optimism which expects things to turn out well but the belief that there's still good worth working for and that's a definition of hope I can get behind and, and that's a definition of hope that I think infused in my novel, that paraphrased quote. Arnold, you're there with refugees in Europe who have no idea when they'll be returning to Ukraine or e indeed if they'll be returning to Ukraine and if they do return to Ukraine, what will be left? How do you talk to them in a hopeful way? How does hope function for you? Look, people in desperate circumstances Hope is not the word. It is what can we do practically. Anyone that's been involved with people that are in desperate circumstances, for example, year after year, uh, being in touch with Beirut Bichani and various others on Manus Island, there comes a point you can't say to them, oh, my prayers are with you, my hope's with you. I mean, they just want to know how to get out of the place. I once asked uh, Fahad Bandish, uh, another resistance fighter, on Manus Island and then later on in Melbourne in the hotel prisons, I said, what is it you want to hear? And he says, we want you to say, I am fighting with you and alongside you to find a way for us to get out of this horror. Hope in a sense is just, uh, we've got to accept our situation. For us to survive, we can't hope anymore because we're talking about an indefinite situation. I mean, you don't know how long it is, if ever, you're going to be able to go back. And so there comes a point that you've got to get beyond hope and you've got to get to a point of acceptance and then, okay, 
where do I go from here and how do I move on? And there are lots of people in that situation, aren't they? I mean, the Palestinians, if you're a Palestinian, um, you know, a lot of people are in that kind of situation. People in Myanmar, Rohingya. Louisa, your experience with Hong Kong, how does what Arnold and Bronwyn has described it, how does that work for you? Well, it's so interesting that you talk about that whole question of what, we, what can we do from now on. And, you know, for Hong Kongers and particularly these new Hong Kong communities in Australia, you really see this is the key question of their lives right now. And one of the things they can do is building communities, talking to each other, starting afresh. And I just, I gave a talk in Melbourne and it was very emotional. There were lots of very emotional questions, but my very favorite of all was one man who was actually a volunteer. And he said, you know, my question for you is, as Hong Kong is in exile, what is it that we can do apart from being the very top of our fields, no matter where we are, no matter what we do? And I just thought that was such an absolute declaration of optimism and hope, and also ambition, because Hong Kongers are ambitious people, and that's fantastic. They're allowed to be ambitious and allowed to be ambitious for make, making a presence and making a life elsewhere. And I just thought that was such a beautiful moment. That sense of identity then that builds from that becomes a very different thing, doesn't it, from just a geographical sense or an ethnic sense of identity? That's right. I mean, it, it's a civic sense of identity as well. It's a sense of belief in values that is so strong that you're willing to leave the place that you're from in order to protect those values. And so even that act of going into exile can be seen as a very sort of hopeless act of hope in, in a way. Arnold, talking of hope, talking about the, you know, not having a gauge on the future, not knowing whether this is going to end next year. I mean, we were, most of us were caught by surprise at the fall of the Soviet Union. So things can change very quickly. But you don't know that. Towards the end of the windmill, you talk about an Indigenous man named Barrack, William Barrack, and about his dispossession from country, his society, you know, his people are all but destroyed by European settlement. But he continues to live on, and it, it, it seems to me, at least in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, he doesn't lose hope. When he dies, the situation for Indigenous people in Australia at the early last century seems almost impossible. What would someone like William Barrick make now of the fact that a century on from his death, you know, Indigenous people have made so many great strides within Australian society? Well, look, William Barrick was the last Ngarangaita, the last hitman of the Wurundjeri people, uh, the people uh, that lived and still live in the space we call Nam, or they call Nam, and we call Melbourne. It's very interesting. He spent his final years in Corondirk Station, and uh, he'd be sitting on the veranda telling stories. He became a great storyteller. And you have to understand this concept of Luftmensch, right? It's interesting, you know, the, the refugee Luftmensch is the person that goes from place to place, right? And it's a kind of spatial thing. But what happened to Indigenous people was that the, the roots and the ground often was cut from beneath their feet. So they were uprooted in the space that they still lived in, but they were uprooted and, and cut off from it. And I think Barak bridged the gap right, by becoming a storyteller. That was a sense of mission. A century later, I'd say Barrick would still say that the real issue is that we stay alive, our culture stays alive, that our stories stay alive. Because, sorry to interrupt, but in the book, you point to the fact that he very much internalises in a way. He becomes the history of his people, even though most of his people are wiped out. He's, he's the living history of them. Oh, yes, and he felt that very, very strongly. Mind you, Barrack led uh, resistance marches from Corondirk, which is up near Healesville, 60 kilometres to Parliament House, is an exemplar of getting beyond hope to a point of action. He represents that. But he would say to his people today, well, we're not there yet. I'd say he'd say, let's just stay creative. Otherwise, it means nothing. All this progress, what does it mean if we do not still feel a sense of belonging to country. And it reminds me of a moment years ago I did, I shared a stage with an Indigenous elder at a festival where we were both storytellers and we were like exchanging tales. And then there came a point where we, we met 
where we actually met. And that point was when we both realised that what counted was the fact that we were standing there telling stories that kept alive the places that we cared for and had been in some ways taken away from our families. I'm engaged with the Yiddish language. The Yiddish language is, for some people, in some ways it's dying. So what you do is you work on language revival, you work on keeping it alive. But while you're doing that, and Bromwell, this is the question to you about Sarajevo, while you're doing that, there are forces that work against those attempts, aren't there? And I'm thinking in your book, it very clearly comes across that as much as the people are trying to get over what happened 20 years ago, what, they're facing terrible politics, they're facing the IMF demanding that they go through austerity programs, and they're facing rampant corruption. So, mm. And they've struggled, haven't they, with that? Yeah, I'd say struggle is an understatement. It is really the great privilege of my life that I lived there. I feel this. And yet, when I think of Sarajevo and I speak to my friends all, all the time that live there, the reality, and this is what I guess I was trying to capture in the novel, was how does that feel every day? Like, how does it feel on the every day to live under this kind of level of corruption and this idea that, um, as I said before, that you've fought for a city that is now in this really, really stagnant stasis and yet you know perhaps you could leave and find other opportunities but you feel it on an everyday level even though people have this incredibly magnanimous wild sense of humor and philosophical attitude to life it's there all the time like an echo and louisa for the people of hong kong they're trying to as we've discussed redefine themselves i suppose they're trying to work out how to be resilient, where to go from here. At the same time, they're fighting with the second richest country in the world with a massive propaganda machine at its disposal. The odds aren't good, are they? Or at least they're stacked against them. Um, the odds aren't good, but Hong Kong people are resilient. Uh, and Hong Kong is a city of reinvention, a place that has been colonised twice. And it's a place where, you know, in leaving, people are finding their voices to tell Hong Kongers stories for themselves. And I think, you know, again, it's about that power of voice and of storytelling. It's a place whose history has always been written for it by colonial powers. That was one of the things that I wanted to do in writing my book was to center Hong Kong voices in the telling of Hong Kong history and to return it to Hong Kongers. Because for the foreseeable future, that act of telling that, that story is going to be so hard for Hong Kongers within Hong Kong that it's those outside who have to do some of that work. One thing that I got from your book, Indelible City, was we're used to the protests in Hong Kong in very recent times. We know that there was a long period of colonisation, but there was also there's this sort of history that the, the British colonisers and, and indeed the Chinese Empire, let alone the Chinese Communist Party, suppressed about Hong Kong. But it has a long history of rebelliousness, doesn't it? Yes, it really does. I mean, going all the way back to the time of legends, you know, the fifth century, when there was supposed to be this mythical ancestor of Hong Kong as a, a fish man who has grown out of a rebel against China's central government who had fled with his armies to live in a cave in Lantau, an island off Hong Kong, and eaten so much fish it turned into a fish man. And this was the mythical ancestor that a lot of Hong Kongers, artists and playwrights and filmmakers embraced as someone, although he was mythical, perhaps truer to their own conception of themselves than the histories they'd been told about themselves. So I think, again, as Arnold said, it's, it's really very much about the power of being able to tell your story, and whether fictional or fact, owning those myths and those legends. Even during the British period, it's easy to forget that Hong Kong was a haven for people who were protesting against what was going on in China. And even during the Qing, the era of the Qing. So famously, Sun Yat-sen was based there in Hong Kong. That sense of rebelliousness, has that gone though? Is it too early to say? It is too early to say. After the Umbrella Movement, when I really thought that it had gone and I spoke to one of the Umbrella Movement leaders, he 
compared Hong Kongers to asylum seekers whose children have resignation syndrome, where they almost go catatonic because of the position that they're in. And he said Hong Kongers have resignation syndrome. It will come back. The time will come. And then five years later, with the extradition legislation, we saw that coming back again. I mean, I think now we're in a different reality. You know, at the moment, people inside Hong Kong are thinking about just survival rather than protest. But I think Hong Kongers are resilient people who have got this sort of sense of rebellion deep in their bones and in their blood. We now have these communities in exile as well as one artist who went into exiles, he said to me when I asked him this very question, he said, our fight isn't over. It's just being played out on a much bigger battlefield. From the Byron Writers Festival, you've been listening to authors Louisa Lim, Arnold Zabel and Bronwyn Birdsell. You can find the details for their books on the Big Ideas website. The moderator was RN's Anthony Fennell. And I spoke to another set of writers about resilience in the face of adversity and how to bounce back from trauma and tragedy. The first of them was Tim Costello. I'd always been a sunny optimist thinking I can make a difference and uh, the Boxing Day tsunami really didn't destroy all optimism but it uh, destroyed naivety and that sense that... uh, If you just try hard enough and uh, get the universe aligned, you can make a huge difference. Uh, What I saw, there were mass graves, mainly of women and children. They could not run fast or hang onto a tree like a man could. And uh, they were being buried unnamed in death. You had to bury quickly because cholera might break out. What particularly hit me was no one prepares you for the smell of death. And that's where that sunny optimism, I guess, dissolved. This is so overwhelming, so arbitrary, so unfair. What difference uh, can I make? So in that sense, um, it was uh, injecting, uh, I guess, a chill into the soul. What I learnt there, and it goes to all my work, and I think the other writers will attest to this, is uh, development is trying to bring aid and help and humanitarian relief. The most important thing you do is just being a presence. Saying to people, I know your name, I look into your eyes. I don't say anything because sometimes you don't have the language, but a touch, a staying with a person to say, you are not alone. I see you and know your name. In my faith, God sees you and knows your name. And I would say uh, when we ask the question, because we've got the luxury in Australia of, well, where's God? How is he all loving and powerful? Questions I can't answer. There in tsunami and disaster areas, the only resource people have is faith. It may be Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu. And that means that without that resource to say there still is some point in life, some deity, some one I trust, I can't get out of bed and rebuild. I can't go on. Mm. Faith actually is the resource that I Mm. saw there and it's why I reflect in this memoir on my faith too. Chloe, there are just devastating stories in your book as well. Uh, One of a survivor recounting... I remember this so clearly from reading the book, recounting how he was unable to save his wife's life as they were attempting to flee the property with the fire closing in. There's another of a phone call from a son to a father saying, a phone call, maybe a text, saying he was going to die. Give us a sense of how traumatised the Latrobe Valley and that community of Churchill was following the fires and what some of the raw emotions were that were on display when you visited that community and spoke to some of the people there. Well, I'm different to Tim because I wasn't on the ground immediately afterwards and actually my book is a reconstruction, you know, done really five years, six years, seven years afterwards. But those stories are heartbreaking and yet um, those of us who who might not necessarily have 
a faith in in a god you know we we also have faith in stories we're here partly because a lot of literature is actually the story of survival of resilience i mean if you go back to the old testament or all of the epics i mean they're about sort of withstanding horrors and it's the survivors obviously who write these tales mm. but in the midst of the worst disasters we continue and part of storytelling is probably about how we find it in ourselves to keep going and there is therapy for the community itself in their story being retold do you think Look, I had an interesting experience recently where I did an in-conversation in a, in a book group and there was a woman who right at the end stood up and she was crying and she said, I grew up a street away from where Brendan Sokolok, the arsonist in my book, lived. And so, you know, this was really a story of home for her. Mm. And I, I, was, I was sort of waited with bated breath to, what she, to hear what she said next. And she said, thank you. I feel that I was seen. But she might just as easily have said, who do you think you are yeah. coming in yeah. to my community and trying to tell our story? Both of those reactions would have been valid. Yeah. Yet, how do we know who we are if we don't tell stories about our culture and our country. So, Lee, I was interested in Tim talking about faith. You spoke to so many people who'd survived trauma and loss, and their observations are so instructive. But also instructive was your own perspective on faith and God. You don't believe in God, and you write that you were subconsciously judgmental of those who did. But in writing this book, your take has somewhat changed. Tell us a bit Definitely, about Definitely, because um, exactly as Tim said, I came to see that for some people, their religious faith was the thing that, and the only thing that got them through what had happened to them. And it struck me, given how random and cruel life can be, um, what a wonderful thing it is if you do have religious faith that you can rely on to get you through. I was also, um, though, equally struck and impressed by people who had other things that got them through, whether it was finding a purpose in what something terrible that had happened to them and turning it into a greater good. So, say, for example, Walter Mickack, whose entire family had been killed at Port Arthur, then campaigned for gun law reform in Australia, or even just people who, through their coming to understand how kind people could be around them, I guess that sort of revelation enabled them to recover. You can check out this discussion on the ABC Listen app. Again, the details are on the Big Ideas website. I'm Paul Barclay. Bye for now. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.